Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. The year was 1984. Now, I know that there are many in the room tonight who didn't actually get to experience 1984, but let me tell you what it was a little bit like. The LA Olympics were on. Uh, Wham! were on top of the charts singing Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. Girls were wearing tube skirts and everybody was wearing fluoro, Choose Life t-shirts, but not just like there was fluoro, Bangalore, and 1984. And I was in year eight in high school. Tells you how old I am, but anyway. I was in year eight in high school and I went to, so it's a time of your life where you're just starting to notice people and notice girls. And, uh, but I went to a Christian high school and so there were limits on how much noticing you could do at a Christian high school because we had this school rule and the school rule was called the PC rule. Now, political correctness hadn't taken off yet, so it wasn't PC political correctness. It was physical contact. And so at the Christian high school, and I, I guess it's the same today, with the PC rule, the teachers monitored fairly carefully to make sure that girls and boys weren't touching at any point. Well, at the school we were at, it wasn't, hadn't been a school for very long and it had been two Baptist churches in the western suburbs of Sydney that had started a school. And, there, you know, it wasn't lots of buildings and the campuses weren't developed. There were basically two churches that were running this school. So there wasn't enough room for all the students. So at lunchtime, often um, students would be packed onto the bus and sent to the other campus. And this would happen to year eight quite a lot. Our lunchtimes were um, all 60 or so of us sitting on a bus, going to the other campus. It was only about 10 minutes away, but the school decided that there wouldn't be any teachers supervising on the bus. We were all very good. Well, most of the time. So there's this girl sitting next to me. Her name was Julia. And we're on the school bus. We're on the bus going between campuses and somebody throws a school blazer over us. And we may or may not have had a kiss under that blazer. No one will ever know. Anyway, we got to the next campus and we went into our lessons and, and I'm sure nobody really thought much more about it until standing in the doorway of our classroom came the deputy principal. Now, you always knew when the deputy principal turns up, that's serious. More serious than the principal because they really brought the rule of law to the school. So our deputy principal turned up at the doorway and you know when you get the guilts? Like, you know, okay, I know a lot of you have never experienced the guilts. I, was, I wasn't the best kid in school. So this happened quite a bit to me actually. Um, anyway, so there's a the deputy principal taking up the door for a frame wave and I thought, oh, and he called me out. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in so much trouble. Anyway, I was in trouble because I'd broken the PC rule. So they, I got detentions and a letter was written and sent home. I was just trembling because it was terrible. And I, I took that letter home. My mum actually had a bit of, she tried not to laugh. She did her best not to laugh. And so once I did my detentions, we never spoke of it again. But my, my friends in days after that were like, you know who it was who dobbed you in? And I was like, no, who dobbed me in? They said, it's Cameron, your old boyfriend. He dobbed you in. Jealous, jealous, jealous. And so we believed the urban myth that Cameron sold me down the river. Well, fast forward to the last week of HSC, where traveling to school on the train, uh, which our group of friends did often, 
and we're, you know, through the inner western suburbs of Sydney. And we're telling stories about the last five or six years together and hilarious stories and serious stories. And, and it was a great time as we're heading to school. And somebody brings up the PC breaking of me and Julia in 1984, in year eight. And, um, and yeah, like Cameron guy. And then one by one, they're like, actually, it was us. It was all my closest and dearest friends in year eight had decided that I'd transgressed and they needed to go to the deputy principal and rat me out. And finally, after five or six years, the guilts had been too much for them and they confessed to me. They took something that had been hidden and they uncovered it. Now, we did laugh a lot on that train that day. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. Oh, my HSC marks must have suffered because of that trauma. No. <laughs> but what they did was, in that moment, they decided to take something that was hidden and covered and uncover it. It's this idea of confession. They fessed up. They actually put words to something that had been hidden for a long time in their hearts and in their minds. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word confession tonight. If you grew up in maybe a Catholic family, then when I say the word confession, you might instantly think of confessing to a priest and absolution and, and doing things to get that forgiveness. You might uh, have maybe watched a movie. If you like crime movies, you, you're actually building up all the time to this idea of confession. Somebody at the end of that movie actually says out loud, it was me or it was him or it was her. And it's this idea of confession. And alongside it is this idea that as we confess, as we speak out, something happens to our guilt and shame. It's quite an amazing concept. But as we speak out, something happens to our guilt and shame. See, confession is a pathway to clear conscience. It's a pathway to inner thriving and forgiveness. And we're going to look at that tonight. And it's a really powerful thing. It's a pathway to clear conscience. See, there's an internal battle happening inside every single one of us a lot of the time. Is it better to hide things or is it better to uncover things? Otherwise, as human beings, we wouldn't have learned how to lie. It would be something that would just be foreign to us. But there is this internal thing that battles away in us of like, you know what? And, and we've got a cultural lie. We actually, we actually often live under a cultural lie of, you know what? I think my life will be better if I keep my worst bits hidden. The Bible wants to challenge that very idea. It wants to challenge this, this, uh, this communal idea that you live a better life if you keep things hidden. And it wants to speak into this internal battle and help us find a place of inner thriving through clear conscience. So tonight we're going to look at a psalm that David wrote. A man many, many years ago who was good on the guitar and would write songs to God. But this song tonight, yeah, it is a song to God, but it's, it's, it, there's some twists in it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share that with you right now. I'm going to read it. And then I'm just going to notice a few things in there. We're going to notice a few things together and, uh, and see where we go. I really believe that God is going to minister powerfully in here tonight because he wants us to be people of the clear conscience. He wants us to thrive inwardly. And there's some of these cultural lies that hold us back from that. So Psalm 32, here we go. I was going to read the whole thing, but I might just, might just read up to verse 5. There we go. 
Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's a couple of things in here that I really would encourage us to notice tonight that can bring freedom to our spiritual journeys. The first is this, that in this song that David has written, there's a real contrast in the way the word cover is used. The first way that it's used is the idea that you as a human being can attempt to cover your sin, your wrongdoings. In verse 3, it says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. There's actually this option for us as human beings that we actually cover or we attempt to cover our sin, our iniquity, the things we've done wrong. And David in this song helps us to understand it's this idea of keeping silent. You've probably all experienced this. When somebody asks you directly, if, were you the person who said such and such to someone or were you the whatever? And there's, you know, I, I, we're all so similar. We're just like, we just want to please people. And, and how easy is it to just cover that up? We can often tell ourselves, man, I won't tell them, but how easy is that to become I won't tell God? And the crazy thing about this is, this is really, this is a really interesting thought. Well, I think it's an interesting thought. You might think so as well. And here's the thought that God sees everything we've ever done. And yet we can still attempt to cover that from him. What is that about? It's almost like we think maybe, maybe God, maybe he can see you, but he can't see me. You know what I mean? It's like maybe you can't see through the roof. I, I better not sin outside. I, I don't know what it is. But, but there's this thing by which he's saying, I can see everything, but it's really important for you to confess. It's a powerful thing. Right. Well, the other option of covering, and you see this in verse 1 and 2, particularly verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So the word cover is the same word here, covered, but here, God is covering. And what it equals is, what it means is forgiveness. And it's this idea of I will come clean. So this internal battle that's raging within each one of us is this idea of will I try to cover it up or will I allow God to cover it up? There's no forgiveness when I try to cover it up, but there's nothing but forgiveness when God covers it. And that's the internal battle that's happening around the idea of covering. The second thing I'd encourage us to notice tonight about this psalm is this. Covering up causes physical and mental and I'd say spiritual exhaustion to happen in us. And you know what? It can be so subtle or we can be so used to it and desensitized that we don't even notice it. What's it feel like? What's, what's the closest thing I could probably describe for you to say, ah, I get it. I would say, have you ever felt run down? Have you ever felt maybe burnt out? Have you ever felt sort of like there's anxiety all through you? I'm not saying those things are a result of sin. What I'm saying is they're probably the closest feelings or experience that you could get that equates to this idea of what David's saying in verse 3 around, I kept silent and my bones wasted away. You can't thrive 
Verse three and four, kept silent, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. I mean, last weekend, how hot was it last weekend? There was a hot breeze blowing from the west or somewhere where it's hot. And I'm sitting on my back deck because I'm thinking about going in the pool, but I wanted to be hot first. And as I sat there, the heat was just like, it was, it was hot. Was it not hot? It was hot. So I jump in the pool and I come back up and not long, this breeze would just dry the water off. And before long, you started to dry up again. And that's how David in his song is saying, that's what it's like when we try to live this existence where we're like, um, God, I'm just going to keep silent and not let you know the stuff that's happening in my heart. It does actually have physical, spiritual and mental implications for us. Now, David here is, uh, I, don't want you, I don't want you to think David is a songwriter that's sort of away from the whole lived experience. So for David, the lived experience is very real. David was not just a songwriter, but if you know anything about the history of Israel and the kings, he actually became king of Israel. And so for him, in the narrative where you read about him as king, you see this actually outworking of this verse 3 and 4 talking about the idea of keeping silent. How did David keep silent? Well, he's in the palace one time. He's up on the roof and he looks, and we're in the first couple of chapters of uh, 1 um, Samuel and describing David and his reign. And he's on top of his uh, palace and he looks down to the house next door and there's Bathsheba uh, naked in the bath. And he thinks to himself as king, I'm going to take her and have my way with her. It was wrong. And yet he did it anyway. So, you would think David is described in other places as a man with a heart after God. So you would think the first thing David would do would be to like fess up. Oh God, I have really got it wrong. But no, David doubles down. What David does is he covers up. And so I wouldn't be surprised as he's writing this song and he's in verse three and four, uh, he's actually reflecting on this time in Samuel when he covered up. In fact, he doubles down so much that he decides he wants this woman. So he tells his commanders to send the husband out to the front line of battle. And when you're in the heat of battle, I want everybody else to fall back and he will die. He's a man after God's own heart. I mean, this is crazy story. And David so refuses to confess his sin before the Lord. Actually, God has to tap the prophet Nathan on the, on the shoulder and said, look, you've got to go down to the palace and confront David. So he goes and tells him a story about an awful thing. And he says to the king, actually, God says, it's you. There was confession and repentance after that point. But here's the point. David, when he's talking about this idea of groaning all day long and the midday heat, and he's talking about my bones withering up, and he's talking about uh, all these um, physical, spiritual, and mental implications of not confessing, he is actually, he's got a lived experience and he knows what he's talking about. It's a beautiful thing when we then decide to uncover. And this is the third thing I'd encourage you to notice tonight about this psalm. Verse 5 says this, and this is just like, this is almost like the pinnacle of the psalm. Then I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's interesting. Uh, what I find is interesting. It didn't just forgive the sin. It forgave the guilt of the sin. That's something to ponder. So 
As far as David's concerned, this idea of uncovering is the same as confession. So whenever we confess something, we uncover it. We make it known. I was reading over the summer a book that I was given way back in 1993. It's called No Compromise. And it was about a, a Christian musician who was very prominent in the 70s and 80s, early 80s. His name was Keith Green. Some of the greatest songs of the time were written by him. And he would uh, go and do tours and concerts and that sort of thing. And in his journal, he would talk about how he just longed for a deeper experience with God in his concerts. He was like, I just want to transcend from entertainment into a place where people really experience the presence of God. And he writes about this yearning to go deeper and experience God in, in an unbridled type way. And so he gets invited to Oral Roberts University, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he does a series of concerts in 1977. And as he's doing these concerts, what happened is young people started to get up and confess their sin. In fact, you can see his grand piano, and all those people are on stage. In fact, he even journals about how people were under the piano just crying out to God and saying, God, I confess, I confess. And they're confessing their sin. And he says in his journal, he talks about how the presence of God was so thick in that place because all of a sudden there was this uncovering culture. And people as a community en masse experienced this idea of, I acknowledge my sin to you, I didn't cover my iniquity, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's a powerful thing, and I think it really is a doorway, a gateway to having a clear conscience. It's a gateway to thriving inwardly. It's so powerful. It's a gateway to having guilt and shame taken away from our existence. So confession is good. We have to keep battling the cultural lie that says confession is bad. But confession is actually good. It's powerful. So I just want to, as, I, as I'm sort of getting towards the end here, think through some tips or some thoughts that I have about this idea because if I just wind you up and say confession's good, confession's good, we could find ourselves in some messy situations if we don't approach this with wisdom. So a couple of things I'd encourage us about. I'd encourage you that a regular habit before God is better than an irregular habit. I used to find that if I had my quiet times regularly and I wasn't in that place of confession and saying, God, is there stuff that I have offended you with that you want me to uncover? I would find myself sometimes getting to that place of like just allowing it to become days and weeks and months and allowing that guilt to build up. And I'd actually find myself a little bit repelled from wanting to do my quiet times. It's actually a really compelling thing to draw us into the presence of God, this idea of I want to keep short accounts with God. He wants us to uncover because it's the only way that forgiveness and guilt and shame can be taken away. The second thing that I'd encourage us to think about around this idea of confession and the practical implications of it is that it is, uh, it's helpful to confess to people. James chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's interesting here is that if you've been around people who love prayer, I'll quote to you the second half of that verse. But the context is actually to get to that place, you've got to be a person of confession. And in fact, confessing your sins to one another. Now, the third thing I want to say about this is we need to be really careful of the context of how we go about this because you need wisdom in how to do this well. 
say, for example, you have a thought in your head all the time about how you don't like a particular person. Can I just suggest that going and confessing that to them and they're not aware of that is probably not a helpful thing to do. Look, I don't care what everyone else says about you, you know, or I just, I just want to tell you that I've been really angry with you every day of my life, but I forgive you. Can I just, can I just suggest that that may not be a fabulous way to do confession? We've got a whole pastoral team here. We've got uh, young adult leaders. We've got connect group leaders. And can I encourage you, if God starts to, in your heart, say there's something that needs to be uncovered, can I encourage you to think about a conversation with someone before you do that? You're not asking for someone to talk you out of it. You're asking for someone to give you a bit of wisdom how to do it well. I would say if your sin is in front of a whole bunch of people, then it's a right thing to confess that in front of a whole bunch of people. If it's in front of your family, then that's the right context for it. But you want to get the context right because otherwise it can be a bit messy. Um, 1998. We had youth camp in Tamworth. We were very new youth leaders and uh, we had a tent full of young people at camp, similar to what you saw there. And um, the spirit of God moved and people started to openly confess their sins, which is great until it's not. So one of the young men uh, gets up and starts to confess secret sexual sin. I want to tell you that is awkward. So we had one of our youth leaders, he was up and he was, let's go a little chat over here. And, uh, and it, was, it was good. But can you see how that in the right context, it's edifying, but in the wrong context, it's awkward and not edifying. So the important thing is thinking through the context, I would say find trusted people, pastors, there's, there's elders here, there's pastors here. In fact, there's so many people in this church who have got so much wisdom over so many years, they can guide you through this difficult process. The last thing I'd say about that is it is, it can be messy. If you're just confessing to God thought life stuff, it's generally not that messy. But if you've actually done something to somebody and you're confessing that, it can be messy because you might, there might be actual legal uh, implement, implement, thank you. <laughs> That's a serious point too. <clears throat> Um, there might be legal implications, or at very least, there'll be relational implications around that. So be aware that it can be messy and there can be consequences around that. Still, God wants us to be people of the confession. God wants us to be people who come to him and uncover. God has a vision for your life. And this vision is that you would actually win the internal battle in fact, the internal battle would be put to rest. And that comes by being people of the uncovering, by pe being people of the confession, by people who like actually say, God, here I am in all my rawness and sinfulness. In fact, this psalm, as it goes on, as David's writing this song and singing this out, there's this change of voice that happens in verse 8 and 9. The whole psalm up to this point has been David speaking to God. And then something happens in verse 8 and 9 and it's turned where the voice becomes God speaking to David. And there's this vision of how God wants us to be before him. And it says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like a horse or a mule which have no understanding but must be controlled by a bit and a bridle or they will not come. So God's got this vision of us as his people, 
by which he doesn't want to be like a horse to us where we've got a bit and a bridle in our mouth and he's got to constantly pull us one way or the other because we're people who don't know how to confess and hear his voice. His vision for us is that we would be so much people of the confession. We would live such lives of guilt-free and shame-free that we could listen for the finest whispers of God and be led because he whispers to us, not because he's got to actually pull on this bridle with all its strength and pull us this direction and this direction. That's his vision for you and me and us as a community that would be so in tune and hearing his voice. But it only comes as we are people of the confession, people with clear consciences, people who are thriving inside, people where guilt and shame have been dealt with. And that's his vision for you and I. As I say these words tonight, this might be the first time you've ever heard this. You might be like, you mean that there's a way to solve this internal thing that's happening that weighs me down? I say, yes, there is. And many people in this room have experienced that. And if you haven't, can I encourage you tonight that you can meet Jesus yourself tonight and have him cover all your sin, take away all your guilt and shame if you just confess before him. It's a powerful thing. There's many people in this room who have done that. And if you haven't, I would encourage you that tonight is a perfect night to do that. I'm going to pray for us right now. Let's just stand. If you're in that place tonight, and I'd be very surprised, whenever somebody talks about a subject like that, often what happens is all these little incidences will come to your mind. Uh, Things that you've been hidden will come there and you'll be like, oh, that time I stole cookies from the cookie jar or I said that bad thing about someone. You know what I mean? That's just what happens. And this is God's way of just priming us into this lifestyle. And so tonight, I'd imagine you've got um, some things that are sort of like you're trying one ear to listen to me and the other ear, you've got this like, do you remember that time you did such and such? Uh, I, I bet you we're all in that place tonight. And God just wants to right now just minister powerfully to you. We're just going to take a moment in communion. But before we do, I just want to pray for you and for me. Uh, and just um, just allow God's presence to come and minister powerfully in every heart here tonight. Father God, we just thank you for those words of David, which bring such life to us, that you don't want us to be people who are like your hand is heavy on us, like the midday sun or our bones are groaning and drying up. But your vision is people who are thriving inward with incredible guilt and shame taken away and people of the confession and living free people who don't need the bridle and the bit pulling on our mouths, but we just know how to listen and speak. So come and have your way in this place tonight, Father God. Bring a lifestyle that breaks down these cultural lies that hiding thing is better. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.